John Stark takes a bow after more than three decades of molding theater students at ISU. I think it's all about creating um, an atmosphere where we're, we're striving for the best work that we can produce. But he's not done yet with the Illinois Shakespeare Festival, and that's coming up on WGLT's Sound Ideas. Good afternoon, I'm Eric Stock in for John Norton. On today's show, a history lesson in beer brewing in Bloomington Normal and the straight line from pre-prohibition to today. When I look at Distill and their new, their sort of new place, I see that as an old German beer garden. And singer-songwriter Ty John Charlie says his musical message boils down to one word, confusion. She's trying to make sense of the human experience, I think. Charlie has several concerts planned in Bloomington Normal. All that after a Bloomington Normal News update, visit WGLT Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. Hear My Story continues with local patient Bill McKay. We have a beautiful pipe organ. With hearing aids, all of a sudden this pipe organ comes alive. It's like, it's a beautiful, rich sound that I don't know that, that I could have appreciated prior to having hearing aids. Bill's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. From the campus of Illinois State University in Normal, this is WGLT's news magazine, Sound Ideas. I'm Eric Stock, in for John Norton. The Stark era has come to an end for Illinois State University's School of Theater and Dance, where scenic designer and professor John Stark has taught his last class, painted his last set, mentored his last grad student. After more than three decades of service to the university, Stark retired at the end of the semester. But we haven't seen the last of him yet. Stark is also artistic director of Illinois Shakespeare Festival, a role he intends to keep through the 2024 season. Here's WGLT's Lauren Warnicke with a retrospective on Stark's exceptional career at ISU. John Stark says he first got bit by the theater bug as a junior in high school. He performed in a musical called Wonderful Town. Um, and uh, I walked on stage and said, skeet, scat, skittily do a lot uh, <laughs> in, that, in that musical as a bit player. Uh, I had a friend then uh, that was uh, starting a, a little uh, summer stock theater in my hometown of Schuyler, Nebraska. I'm a farm boy from Nebraska. And uh, so we formed the Gemini Players, which was this little group, and I did worked with them for three summers he went to Wayne State College in Wayne, Nebraska, and that's where I ended up going to school. And I majored, actually, I majored in radio and TV with a theater minor. When did you transition over to being more fully on the production side? Part of uh, the summer program at Wayne State College was a uh, theater in Indiana, which was uh, uh, the, the uh, Nettle Creek Players in Hagerstown, Indiana. We did four musicals a summer in the tent in Indiana. And uh, sounds that was, lovely. Yeah, it was it was a beautiful experience. And of course, it never rains in Indiana. Never, and it's never hot. <laughs> it's never hot and humid. So, uh, so I did five seasons there, um, and I started out as just kind of doing everything, acting and technical work. But um, they started. I noticed that they paid for the technical positions more than any of the other positions, and I had skills in that area. Uh, probably extending from my farm boy experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but I also, uh, as a child, I drew a lot. And I did take one art class in high school. And I sort of rediscovered that I had uh, ability uh, to draw. I went to grad school, got my MFA at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. 
and uh, then went from there. Is there a gap between the MFA and arriving in uh, at ISU? Uh, there is, uh, the, but right out of grad school, I uh, was looking for jobs, and one of the jobs that came up actually was a teaching job at Illinois Wesleyan University. So I taught at Illinois Wesleyan for three years. I then moved on uh, to Arizona State University and took a job there as an assistant scene designer and technical director. In 1991, I, I came here uh, as a one-year interim <laughs> scene designer position which then turned into being here for 32 years. Arriving at ISU in the early 90s, I mean, this is kind of a a golden age for the theater department at ISU. Yeah, I was um, there. I was there when there were still two members of the founding founders of the department. Gene Scharfenberg and John Kirk were still on faculty. Uh, Sort of a legendary acting teacher, Patrick O'Gara, was also on faculty. And so I was sort of at the tail end of those that uh, part of ISU. But it connected me to all that history. And so I met a lot of people connected to um, going back to even Cal Prittner, who uh, was the founder of the Illinois Shakespeare Festival. Uh, And, of course, my uh, dean at the time was Al Goldfarb, uh, who also was – head of the Department of Theater, uh, then dean of the uh, College of Fine Arts, moved on to provost, uh, so has a long history at Illinois uh, State University. He was highly involved in uh, the Illinois Shakespeare Festival as well over the years. How have you um, shouldered and shepherded that, but also did your own work to kind of advance and transform the department? I think it's really just facing one season at a time, one show at a time, and uh, working to make it the you know the best experience for the students rather than to learn, but also to create a product that we're proud of, and it establishes a baseline for them to take it from there into the profession. But I think it's all about creating um, an atmosphere where we're, we're striving for the best work that we can we can produce. You look mm-hmm. at the trajectory of the past three decades. You're you know primarily a scenic designer, but have experience in light. We're moved almost wholly away from incandescent fixtures, right? right and conventional right. fixtures. We were in an LED world where whole sets on Broadway have been replaced by LED screens and video design. Mm-hmm. All true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, that, I think, for many uh, folks uh, is inherently exciting and offers a learning curve, even at this stage in your mm-hmm. career. But also, I've heard of some of your contemporaries feeling very overwhelmed by those changes, wanting to still impart those fundamentals of analog drawing and drafting. And how have you managed to balance those things, like learning and Mm -hmm. teaching the new technologies and then also keeping the fundamentals as part of the curriculum? Well, still in our program, we teach hand drafting and sketching, and then the computer becomes an extension of your hand and it becomes a tool. It is just a tool. It will do amazing things for you, Mm -hmm. but it is a tool for your creations. For me, personally, I think with a pencil, and I still do most of my work by pencil, but I think the fundamental there is finding the way that you create and how you can how you think, and that's the important part. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Lauren Warnicke. At the end of our conversation, I asked newly retired Illinois State University theater professor John Stark to look back on his 30-plus years at ISU and to list some moments of which he felt particularly proud. Oh, wow. There were some early shows. I worked with a, a director. He actually, he and I came the same year to Illinois State, Cal McLean. 
Uh, Cal came as the head of directing, head of the directing MFA program, and I came in as the head of the scene design program. And we, first of all, within about a two, year and a half, two years, we were teaching a collaborative class that I was very proud of, uh, a class where we brought grad directors and designers together to work together to to really make a very real connection about collaboration. And that class has morphed somewhat, but still on the books. And so we created that. There was a show uh, on campus, Sweeney Todd, that I still re recall. It was an amazing uh, bunch of actors. Uh, two of the, the two leads went on to working in Chicago and touring around the country. Um, and it's still uh, just a highly amazing show in Little Westoff Theater when it was a proscenium, mm -hmm. a huge musical. Uh, another show, my first show in 1993 at the Illinois Shakespeare Festival was Pericles. And Pericles is always uh, a show that I point to. Uh, Doug Finlayson, who's actually directing this summer, he's directing the Comedy of Airs, he and I worked on Pericles, and it was my first time working with him. But in that case, uh, Peter Cook, who is, uh, played Pericles, the lead, and he, Peter does not speak, and he doesn't hear. Hmm. And so he had the lead at the Shakespeare play. So Doug had this amazing idea that Gower, who is a narrator uh, character, voiced what needed to be voiced for Pericles. And then Peter told the rest of the story with his body, with his signs, with his pantomime. And it was magical. The Illinois Shakespeare Festival kicks off June 23rd with the Comedy of Errors. Details and tickets are at IllinoisShakes.com. Next week on Sound Ideas, community health workers gather in normal to reflect on their pandemic response and how to bring financial stability to the profession. That's on Monday's show. If you're a fan of craft beer, what a time to be alive. Bloomington Normal is now home to a half dozen breweries with more just a short drive away. But Bloomington Normal's beer history dates back a lot farther back than Distill opening in Normal 16 years ago. Rochelle Gridley is a volunteer at the Old House Society and the McLean County Museum of History. She'll be giving a talk about the history of beer in Bloomington tomorrow at Keg Grove Brewing. In this interview with WGLT's Ryan Denham, Gridley talks about one of the most important beer makers in Bloomington. The earliest and longest running brewery in Bloomington was the Meyer and Walkner Brewing Company, which was where we now have the Highland Park Golf Course on Main Street. And um, so they operated there from 1862 until the dog days of Prohibition in 1920, and they never revived after 1920. Wow. So when you, you know, go to Highland or drive past it and you see those, those old brick buildings, those are from the brewery? Those are old brewery buildings, yes. Those still exist. They had the clubhouse in one of them. What can you tell us more about Meyer and, and Walkner? <laughs> well, Meyer and Walkner were both immigrants from Germany, of course. Meyer was the one who knew how to brew beer. He had learned to brew beer in Germany and in New York. And then he worked as a brewer in Illinois for a few years before he met Walkner, married Walkner's sister. And then they heard about a brewery in Bloomington that was going to be for sale. A man named McGrath had a brewery 
at the Highland Park location before 1862 for just a few years, and he was selling out. So they came to Bloomington to buy that brewery and eventually bought out a second brewery that was to the west of them and um, had a really one of the biggest brewing companies in Illinois is what they were saying in the papers in the 1880s. Prohibition comes and uh, Meyer and Walkner, they never they never reopen. They never start start brewing again. No, we as far as I can tell, we didn't have any breweries after that. I mean, Milwaukee and St. Louis were, you know, sending out their beer so profusely that they supplied all the beer. Um, beer came from, even in the 1880s, sometimes you get beer from Cincinnati. So they must have iced it down in the cars or they just, maybe they called it Cincinnati Brewing, but that's how it was advertised in the paper. Actually, it was in the 1880s and 1890s when Milwaukee and St. Louis were kind of taking over the brewing business. And during those years, the number of brewing companies in the United States just dropped precipitously, like half the breweries closed because of competition with the large brewing companies. But Meyer and Wagner hung in there until Prohibition closed them down. What about that period, uh, you know, after Prohibition, uh, but before the sort of the rise of microbreweries and our, our current current wave of, of craft beer makers, what's happening here between like 1920 and 2000? Is there anything much going on in the world of beer making? Not that I know of. I think it was all just beer that came in from every place else. So as you're looking at the arc of history of beer in Bloomington Normal, uh, how important is or how significant is distill to that that history? Oh, I think it's pretty important. When I look at distill and their new, their sort of new place, I see that as an old German beer garden. You know, you can go sit outside, enjoy the fresh air. They have music there and just enjoy it just the way people did when they went to Meyer and Wagner's Grove. They would have picnics there every Sunday. There would be picnics happening, beer being poured, bands playing, and it it was just a real party atmosphere, but for families. So it was um, a real slice of German life come to America. The rise of microbreweries that happens in America in the 1990s and the 2000s, what sort of growth have we seen in beer making in Bloomington Normal in the more recent history since that time? Well, even I'm aware that there are like six different microbreweries here. And I mean, they're all have nice restaurants you can go to, meet people, drink beer. They're even canning it and selling it at the normal theater. I thought that was pretty cool. But the microbreweries are something else. I mean, I was in Lexington. They have a microbrewery in Lexington. Analytical, and that, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty exciting to see all of this new business around making social places for everybody to get together. Well, what do you personally find so interesting about the, the history of beer in Bloomington? Uh, why is it something you wanted to, to study and look into? For me, I just love local history, but it did let me explore even more than beer. I mean, I got into women's politics when I'm talking about beer because the women of Bloomington, um, before Prohibition in 1914, women had the vote for the first time in Illinois. And there was something called the local option that was running through the state where people could vote whether you're going to have a dry town or a wet town. 
And it was a huge battle. Well, the women prepared for this election and educated each other. They, it, it was, they were really, you know, getting their political teeth going. I mean, they had been for a long time with temperance and everything like that. But they really got together and they made Bloomington dry for two years before Prohibition. When you're looking at the, the brewing history, you're looking at the Germans, you're looking at a whole ethnic group, and um, it is really interesting to me. That's Rochelle Gridley, a volunteer with the Old House Society and the McLean County Museum of History. She'll be giving a talk about the history of beer in Bloomington tomorrow from 10 to 11 at Keg Grove Brewing. Gridley spoke with WGLT's Ryan Denham. Summer is nearly upon us in the Twin Cities, and that means a whole bunch of free outdoor entertainment all over town. Downtown Bloomington resumes its free lunchtime concerts on May 31st, and an uptown normal pop-up concerts are already underway. Singer-songwriter Ty John Charlie will appear in both. The Pontiac native and former frontman of the Unemployed Architects went solo a couple years ago. WGLT's Lauren Warnicke caught up with him ahead of his upcoming appearances. Her first question... Are the unemployed architects still a thing? I get this question pretty much constantly. And yeah. uh, it's because I have a sign that says the unemployed architects when I perform. So it's confusing because a lot of my original music is listed on like Spotify yeah. as the unemployed architects. So it's the band I recorded it with. Uh, so I still you know, like to get the word out about the unemployed architects because there's a lot of content there, a lot of, a lot of music there. And I still play a lot of those songs regularly. Okay. But that being said, as far as performing with the band, not so much. Okay. Uh, it's been a thing that, uh, it's been a long kind of transition, but I've been doing the one-man band style performance for years at this point mm -hmm. and pretty much doing it almost exclusively now. Do you only speak to me in this house so lonely? Despite those staircase made out of stone. And it is a, such a creative instrumentation that with guitar, your voice, a kick drum, and like a little tambourine strapped to your foot. <laughs> and, 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 and I'll mention too, it's a tap shoe that the tambourine's on, so you get a little bit of a hand clap. Uh, so that's my, my kind of two cents on the one-man band, I think, is I, I made my own tap shoe and I stomp on wood. Yeah, yeah. But a lot, a lot of people who do the one-man band, they kind of experiment with that. But I think, you know, if I may, and I and we don't know each other very well, but in my <laughs> my limited deep dive into your stuff. I do think you position yourself as a singer-songwriter, a, a lyricist, that you want people to listen to what you have to say. Exactly. Um, so talk a little bit about the more recent stuff that you've done. I know you had your pandemic LP, right? right? Yeah. Is there anything new beyond that? or are Absolutely. we? In, in the very end of last year, I released a 16-track live album, uh, and that was live at State & Water, which little local TV program that they do over in Peoria. And then I very recently would have been middle, early middle March, released my first studio single, which was Will Magic Find Me. Closed off and dried out, 
And I don't see another round Died up enough drought In my eyes the water's out you're creating music to tell your story a little bit better. If you could boil down what that story is and what you're trying to say in your music, how would you summarize that? And you know, like three sentences or less. <laughs> well, I might just say one word, just uh, confusion. That, maybe that's it. Uh, you know, just trying to make sense of the things that you, you, the human experience, I think, ultimately. So I'm, I'm trying to take a, a, a bigger like look at you know what what are we doing here like i don't know it's 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 a crazy we get given this life and then we just kind of do things and uh maybe not think so hard about them and maybe try to avoid some of the bigger questions and i try i think a lot of the times when i'm writing songs they're they're a means to express those questions and concerns and confusions and uh you know just reflecting on some of those same ideas that hopefully I, I think I think most people kind of struggle with but maybe I get a little more time to look at them and really try to analyze them and the fact that I'm writing songs makes me look at stuff a little bit more in depth because you know it is confusing I know that was more than three sentences but <laughs> the other part of it is just like you know I'm, I'm try try to I, I work as hard as I can you know I try to try to play as many shows as I can I think that's definitely a part of the story, you know, I'll do a three, four hour set uh, anywhere that will have me pretty much. When you were sitting in your bedroom in Pontiac and you dreamed about being a, a working musician as a grown up, is this what you pictured? Absolutely not, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> if everything had gone the way that like you, your idealistic kind of naive look at things when you're in high school or earlier, uh, there would be a lot of problems with that too. So you try to just appreciate where you're at. Magic find me. Oh, I don't know. I'll give it a go. Will I put this behind me? Will I ever know? Will I ever know? Ty John Charlie play Saturday, May 27th in Uptown Circle and at lunchtime on June 7th in downtown Bloomington. Both events are free. A link to full artist lineups is on WGLT.org. Thanks for choosing WGLT's Sound Ideas, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. You can find all our Sound Ideas interviews and stories at WGLT.org, and you can subscribe to Sound Ideas on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the NPR app. We want to know what you think of Sound Ideas. Comment on our Facebook page or WGLT-FM. At WGLT News is our handle on Instagram. I'm Eric Stock. The show was produced by Samantha Hill. This is 891 WGLT and WGLT.org, part of the NPR network.